Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm the Director of ECFR and this week we're going to have a slightly more conceptual discussion. We, I'm very happy to be here in our Berlin office with, together with uh, the Managing Editor of Foreign Affairs, Justin Voigt. And we've just done a really interesting event looking at the whole question of the undead past, how nations confront the evils of history. And uh, as we're in Germany, there's a, even a special German word for these sorts of things, the idea of Vergangenheitsbewältigung, which is, uh, I suppose, untranslatable, like so many of these fantastic German words. But is basically about how countries reconcile with and confront their past and I'd maybe just start with you Justin because uh, it's a slightly unusual issue of foreign affairs you're a journal of ideas but you do try and write for practitioners and try not to stray too far from the everyday challenges of, of running foreign policy what was it that made you decide at this particular moment to to delve into a topic which uh, is very German, but maybe for people in other parts of the world uh, is less part of the day-to-day concerns of, of foreign policy makers. Sure. Well, first of all, Mark, thanks very much for doing this. This is a great opportunity to talk further about this fascinating topic. Um, first of all, I will say we tend to think of what foreign affairs covers as anything that's interesting and important. Um, and we try to reach a, a general audience as well as, as uh, practitioners. In this particular case, um, in the United States for the past year, um, maybe two years, there's been a remarkable um, phenomenon. Uh, it's been given many names, uh, the rise of the alt-right, the uh, resurgence of, of sort of white nationalism, and uh, this phenomenon has focused, at least in its public manifestations, in protests and debates about uh, the monuments and memorials to the Confederacy. Um, and that, of course, has been, has been fed much larger uh, debates about uh, race and racial inequality, immigration, uh, the character of the United States. Um, and all of which has been part of our national politics forever, but maybe very uh, specifically so uh, in the past couple of years. So when we, you know, we, we're a global magazine, but we're based in the United States, we're based in New York, we, we can't ignore the kind of um, the, the ferment that, over these issues that's taken place. And we thought to ourselves, well, how can we add value to this as a, as a, as a journal of global issues? Uh, the answer we came up with was to try to do a survey of asking the question, how have other countries dealt with this? And is there anything that the United States might learn from those cases or learn either to do or uh, learn not to do? Um, what, which was a, a very easy exercise in one sense because every country in the world has some version of this, some version of wrongdoing, uh, evil controversy in its past that it struggles to uh, contend with. The harder question was which countries to pick. It's a very long list. And no matter what you pick, you run the real risk of really angering somebody. Well, you know, why did you pick this country but not that country? Uh, why does this seem to qualify and that doesn't seem to qualify? 
uh, we really grappled with this. Uh, we knew we had to do the United States, obviously, that's as an American publication. Uh, Germany was a pretty easy choice because it's sort of the most universally um, recognized example of this for various reasons. Beyond that, though, it got pretty murky. Um, and in the end, what we decided to do was we, we came up with three sort of pairs. Uh, we took a sort of conceptual approach to it since we knew we couldn't cover the entire waterfront. We picked a pair of cases that uh, involved genocidal campaigns, uh, Germany and Rwanda. We picked a, a pair of cases that involved uh, long-term violent campaigns of ideological uh, repression, uh, the Soviet Union and China. And then we picked a pair of uh, cases where you had uh, long-term racial repression, violent racial repression or systems of, uh, of, of racial oppression, uh, the United States and South Africa. Doing it that way gave us a little bit of leeway uh, in terms of not covering all the regions. Uh, you know, we, we, not, there, there's, a, there's so many other examples, including the indigenous people, for example, in the United States and, and Canada and Australia. The content of, La the, uh, continent of Latin America is, is kind of left totally unrepresented. Um, so there, there, you know, we had a lot of push about, well, what about the Armenian genocide and these other uh, popularly uh, recognized uh, examples? But uh, in the end, I, I think we, we came up with a pretty good uh, list. Great. Well, I should have said at the beginning, also two other uh, really interesting people to help us make sense of, of this who come at, from different uh, geographical experiences within Europe. Uh, Mary Fulbrook is the, the dean of the... Faculty of Social and Historical Sciences at University College London and is an expert on Germany. And uh, Francisca Exeler is the Mellon Postdoctoral Research Fellow at uh, the Centre for History and Economics at the Freie Universität Berlin. So I'm um, very interested in uh, talking to the two of you and maybe um, to get into the topic a bit further, Justin just laid out uh, a typology of different historical pathologies. Um, <laughs> but it'd be really interesting to hear from the two of you how you think, what the different models are for uh, processing and, and dealing with, with history um, and collective memory. And, and uh, maybe we could start with Europe, but if you want to go more widely, then feel free. Mary, do you want to start? Well, Germany not only provides the paradigm case of mass murder mass crimes, genocide, Hitler and the swastika being now globally recognised symbols of evil. Um, but it also provides really interestingly three different paradigm cases of roots out of that because the three Third Reich su successor states, West Germany, East Germany and Austria, all have very, very different ways of dealing with this past. Um, so if you want models to simplify radically those three cases, Austria picks up the slogan, Hitler's first victim, we were innocent, the Nazis marched in and took us over, complete myth, um, but very convenient. Austria spends the first 10 years after the war, 1945 to 55, in the people's courts, actually putting a lot of people on trial, and then more or less fizzles out the last serious case in the mid-1970s of known murderers, uh, they were just acquitted, and it was getting embarrassing for the Austrian courts to have Nazi crimes, people who had been involved in Nazi crimes, 
acquitted, and so they just gave up prosecuting. So Austria really did not confront its Nazi past significantly until the emergence of the Waldheim affair, as it was called, in the 1980s. And then when they embraced it rather than rejecting it. Then they embraced it to some extent in memorialisation, but still not in the sphere of justice or restitution. And it was only with really strong campaigns from abroad that they started to recognise the need for compensation, restitution or justice. So that's the Austrian route. East Germany, under communism, has the official myth of the great anti-fascist state. So being led by predominantly communists who are genuinely opposed and suffered under the Nazis, um, a much more stringent approach to justice than West Germany. So bringing people to trial and sentencing them to significant sentences and pushing West Germany, constantly needling West Germany, saying, look, you've still got a bunch of Nazis in high places. West Germany of the three has become the accepted model of the word you mentioned, Vergangenheitsbewältigung, mastering the past or coming to terms with the past. But West Germany did it in a way which I think is extremely ambivalent. On the one hand acknowledging responsibility and memorialising the victims, but on the other hand, failing to bring the vast majority of former Nazis to justice, a pathetic record of justice. Many trials only mounted because particular people were insistent on pushing them through, and the East German competition, the competition between East and West Germany, was significant here. Um, and a very belated and slow recognition of some groups of victims, very belated compensation to some groups of victims. So it's a very, very um, multifaceted record in West Germany, despite the wave of memorialisation and despite the wave of public shame and acknowledgement of responsibility. In some very real senses, it did not face up to practical legacies of the past. So those are the three models, and, and they're very, very different in their outcomes. So it provides a particularly interesting case, I think. Thank you. So, Francisca, you've been looking further to the East, uh, looking at kind of Eastern Europe and Russia. Um, mm. Do you want to tell us how the past looks like there and how, the, how it's managed? Well, um, <laughs> it, it's complicated, as, you know, as elsewhere, but I think the question is always... We, we you know, try to think about models, and um, I wonder what Mary would think about this, is to what extent whether you know that is a government or a society and all its with its spectrums of different opinion and then a diversity of opinions to what extent they approach what um, we might call silences or or difficult topics and um, so we talked about this a little bit before about the question of you know what is being said what is not being said and then how you know um, the things that are being said how are they being said and then the selective um, sort of um, um, selective dealing with the past perhaps so um, to give one example I just came um, back from a visit to Ukraine and there um, the question of the Ukrainian nationalists during the second world war is a very um, contentious issue um, so whereas the, the war in, in Russia today serves sort of more like a or the official narrative of the second world war serves sort of more of a unifying factor um, you know, being such an integral part of, of post-Soviet Russian identity in Ukraine, it's really dividing society, and and it's also um, adding sort of further divisions to the current political conflict, and that mostly pertains to the role also of the Ukrainian nationalists during the Second World War, um, who both committed violence, um, ethnic cleansing of Polish villages, they're complicit in the Holocaust, 
but who also fought against Soviet power after um, 1944, um, after sort of they fought against the reestablishment of Soviet power in West Ukraine. So, and there it's always a question of who remembers what. So I saw an exhibition in a museum on um, um, on Poles, uh, sorry, on ethnic Ukrainians who had been um, uh, forcibly transferred from Pol Poland to Ukraine after the war. But that history simply omitted the forced population um, transfer of ethnic Poles from Ukraine to Poland. So in a way, you tell one side of the story, and they did it in a very complex and nuanced way, but then the other was completely omitted. So I think that's one way, you could say, of selectively dealing with the past, where what you hear or what you read is not wrong, you know, it's just that you feel like something is missing. Mm. Um, were, were there other models that you, were, that you uncovered, Justin, you were... To complete our panorama, yeah, sure. I, you know, for me, maybe the the piece uh, that we published that I sort of learned the most from, or that I found most surprising, was the uh, was the one on Rwanda, um, and we, we talked about that earlier with Phil Clark, who uh, wrote our our piece uh, in that issue. Rwanda did this really fascinating kind of experiment, really a sort of experiment in, in social engineering in in uh, mass education or re-education and in communal justice, I guess you could call it, uh, in where, you know, they prosecuted a vast number of people after the genocide in 1994. Something like 400,000 people were prosecuted. But they were prosecuted um, in a system that was very localized. It was called the gachacha system, which were these sort of village courts where everyone, one's neighbors, one's family, one's wider social network was sort of involved in this. It was compulsory, actually. You had to involve yourself. So they tried to sort of have the best of both worlds. They tried to have peace because it involved kind of communal, collective recognition of what had happened and a sort of confessional quality almost, but also justice. Uh, because th their sentences were meted out. These weren't just uh, kumbaya, you know, uh, sitting around the campfire things. The people who were convicted were punished. So one of the thing reasons this is so interesting, I think, is because history is becoming one of the, the key uh, resources which politics is using, as you said, Justin, in the, in the opening uh, uh, question um, and it's also particularly salient for multinational political projects like the United States um, uh, and the European Union um, which is trying to meld people who come from vastly different places into something into a, into a demos uh, and into a community of faith and uh, it'd be really interesting to hear a bit about how that's changing because I think both for the US and to the EU in a way these political projects were largely about an escape from history so for the US it was about you know the shining city on the hill people kind of leaving behind a past which they individually wanted to escape from within the EU it was often a kind of national escape every single country had some sort of historical trauma which it was uh, trying to, to run away from and though they were very different and uh, divided. Uh, there's a wonderful quote from Bon Valérie where he says, we hope vaguely we dread precisely. And I think it kind of encapsulates what drove the first few decades of, of European integration. But now we seem to be in a state where rather than running away from the past, people are kind of embracing 
the past and using the past as a way of of of, uh, of kind of mobilizing. There's a great book by Zygmunt Bauman that came out recently called Retropia, where he talks about how rather than having a, a kind of forward-looking state to which we're we're running, the 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 idea of the past is in fact the the kind of new utopia. So these divisions about the past become particularly painful and and and. Uh, salient in, in, in these circumstances. It'd be kind of interesting to to hear from all of you how you think you can go about building a kind of meaningful unity, whether it's possible to for these groups to stay together when, when history becomes so uh, contested. Because I think maybe, Justin, you could talk a bit, because you, you, one of the triggers for this, obviously, was mm-hmm. what happened in Charlottesville, sure. where you had this very, very divided... <laughs> Right. Well, <laughs> well, retropia. I mean, that sounds almost like a, a another way of saying you know make fill in the blank great again, right? Yeah. Um, and you know, in, in the case of America, as one of our, our panelists here pointed out, the, the the amazing thing about that slogan, "Make America Great Again," is when you press someone who uses it, when exactly was America great? Mm-hmm. And not just for everybody or for all the minorities, but just in general. When does that you try to pin? Uh, Forget about Trump, Trump pinning him down on anything is pretty difficult, but <laughs> any of his supporters, it's an interesting experiment. If you travel to the States or if you uh, see Americans who come to, to here to Berlin or anywhere else uh, who, who are you know, supportive of the president or his agenda, ask them that question. When was America great? Um, you get a very strange mix of sort of sometimes evasion or, well, it's just a slogan, you know, but sometimes you get sort of specific answers that are very revealing. I've gotten a lot of, well, you know, under Reagan. America was great under Reagan, or people hark back to the 50s, you know, before the 60s. Any, any, it was the 60s ruined everything. Those are the two most common. Interestingly, I've also gotten, oh, you know, turn of the century, you know, pre, pre, you know, uh, pre-war, you know, when the robber barons were in charge of everything. I think, wow, okay, geez. Um, to your larger point, though, you know, this issue of uh, hearkening back, or I think, you know, everywhere both in the U.S. and and here, I think, in Europe and and even around the world, um, part of this populist moment that we're we're living through um, involves these, you know, myth-making projects on a very large scale. Uh, You know, the the most prominent one right now is the U.S. and in some ways sort of the most cartoonish one for various reasons. Um, But everywhere, um, you know, we're seeing this. Look at China. you know, where Xi Jinping, you know, you could basically say that his slogan for the, for ever since he's been a leader has been make China great again. China dream. China dream, right. Um, and, you know, there is a, a large part of that has to do with history. And in fact, one of the, the cases we looked at uh, in this issue, Andrew Mason, a great political scientist of, of uh, China, uh, talked about how China deals with its past or mostly does not deal with it. To the extent that it does deal with the past, it's to censor and uh, erase parts of it that have become inconvenient for the Chinese Communist Party. I look at that and I think to myself, you know, amongst the many other pressures that the, the, the Communist Party in China is going to face in the future, um, in the information age, you know, can you continue to successfully uh, not just rewrite the past but eliminate it uh, when it's inconvenient? I'm not sure. I mean, it's very interesting, Mary, the, to also look at what's happening in Germany now that the, the kind of uh, Holocaust generation on both sides is dying out, how uh, 
these things are being reopened with it. And there was a big controversy around this book called Finnish Germania and there's a lot of pushback from certain segments and the AFD as a political movement has now emerged and, and is trying a very different way of dealing with and processing German history. Is, is, do you think that the German model, the West German model that you talked about is something which will survive or do you think that was something which was uh, a product of memory rather than history and, and uh, something which is going to fizzle away? Okay, so the West German model is a very interesting one because it's very generationally specific. Um, if you look at it, the first couple of decades after the war, the generation that actually were at the forefront of keeping the Third Reich afloat, sustaining the dictatorship, were not interested in memorialising victims. This is something that was a minority interest. Many of the memorial sites were only pushed through by representatives of victims and survivors and political interest groups and so on. The wave of memorialisation has been very much a second-generation phenomenon, the, trying to make us the feel... Shamed children yeah, the shamed-to-be-German generation... Um, the big memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe in the centre of Berlin, for example. This is a, a monument to national shame. Um, and unlike some people who've said it's monumental a monument to our disgrace, it was in fact a monumental disgrace that required such a sizeable monument to national shame. But it's a very unique way of history binding people. Um, the examples you were using before were forgetting nasty bits of the past in order to write the state, the great nation history. I think the European integration is interesting too. If you look at the beginnings of it, the European coal and steel community in the 50s was an attempt to bind Germany in to keep our enemies down. French-German rapprochement was an attempt to make sure Germany wouldn't do what it had done so forcefully in the preceding decades. Um, so it, I don't think history is always, or memory is always, a model about a great past, nor about a past that can integrate people. I think in some cases, and I think the memorialisation of victims in Germany is one of them, it's actually about being seen to do more about expressing how perpetrator communities and their successors feel than it is actually about doing restitution, compensation to vic victims or achieving justice. Now what's happening now, the death of the eyewitness generations, as they're sometimes called, the people who were complicit, the people who were guilty, and the people who were victims or survivors. Um, I think there's got to be a shift now from a memorial culture, which is about remembering victims, to a culture which is about education, and that includes also representing and understanding perpetrators who have been remarkably absent from the entire his historical representation of the last 70-odd years. They've been absent from memorial sites, they've been absent from the courts of justice. If we don't now build in the representation and understanding of perpetration and complicity, we will not be able to fulfil what's needed for the next generation, which is educational, rather than a remembrance culture. Because in, in Eastern Europe, in a way, that, that's where history is weighing the heaviest on politics. I, mean, I was in Warsaw a couple of weeks ago, and, and you know, history is very uh, seldom <laughs> far from the imagination of the political class there, particularly when you have the Law and Justice Party, <laughs> which is in power, with these two uh, searing memories of Germany and Russia. Um, and their oppression of, of Poland, um, 
but that's also been wrapped up now in a weird way with the refugee crisis and with ide new ideas about what it is to be a citizen of, of countries and religious and ethnic identities. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think what we perhaps one could say that what we see in Eastern Europe is, is a further layer of complexity to what is already a very complex issue in the sense that the um, that sort of after you know whether you say 89, 19, or 18. Uh, 89 or 1919, 1991, like in a, there was a new possibilities to actually explore the past and also to express them in different outlets and sort of, you know, new ways of thinking about the past outside heavily state-regulated ways. But at the same time, that meant you had the communist past, sort of that you, you, you know, had to sift through in a way and, and reckon with at the same time, while these people were often still, you know, in the same positions of power or similar positions of power, um, and you had the Second World War and all the complexities that came with that. Um, and then they, they were intermeshed in many ways. Um, um, uh, and I think that is sort of, so we have somewhat almost like double processes here um, that go hand in hand and which perhaps, you know, I don't know if I would venture, venture the far, so far, but it sometimes seems to me that in Eastern Europe, the past is almost more alive. Um, precisely because the communist past is tied up to second, the questions of the Second World War and questions of complicity, questions of loyalty, solidarity, what, what all of that constituted, um, the, the political choices that people make and, and um, the ways in which, in, you know, in, a, in the different um, dicta dictatorships they're forced to make certain choices and then the ways in which that later has an, uh, repercussions for their communities and their social lives. And so um, that perhaps it's not surprising that we see so many conflicts around these issues today in Eastern Europe, considering how kind of heavy like that legacy is. Okay, um, maybe just one last question before we go to the, the bookshelf segment, which is this whole idea of, uh, so what we're talking about is how you manage collective memory, how uh, a nation confronts its past. How does the digital revolution change the very idea of there being a, a, a collective memory as we uh, find ourselves splintering into ever smaller filter bubbles and consuming different media, living in different places, segregating ourselves into ever smaller and more tightly knit groups of like-minded people. Yeah, I said earlier, uh, you know, when I in, in, in opening up this panel discussion we just had, um, you know, that I, I feel working in the media in the United States that we are undergoing an, an epistemic crisis. And, you know, if that sounds grandiose, well, welcome to 2018. I mean, it's, it's a reality, and I think it, it, it extends into the present, it extends into the future, it, it extends into the past. Um, I will say two things, though, about that. One is, I, the, the, the obvious answer is the past and history has, has become another uh, arena of, of struggle between the forces of, of reason and enlightenment and, and those of disinformation and, and emotion. Um, you know, again, this, this sounds kind of simplistic, but it, it's hard to live on a day-to-day -day basis in the United States today, at least, and not feel as though that that's what we're, we're confronted with. Uh, the more optimistic view of it, right, though, is that, yes, uh, we're seeing lots of disinformation about all time periods and about all subjects, but there is still some kind of potential that uh, these communications technologies represent, both for preserving 
uh, facts and for, and for transmitting them and for transmitting ideas and for uh, finding commonalities and for exposing falsehood. Um, so I, I, like to, I like to, maybe it's just to make myself feel better, but I, I, I often, when I think about this problem and I have to think about it every day, um, I like to end on that note, the kind of slightly more techno-optimist view of things, which is that what we're seeing now are growing pains. We're moving into a, a you know, we're still in the early innings of, of the information society. And, uh, you know, the, the liberal in me who sees linear progress as we move forward, really, I, I, maybe it's an article of faith, but I kind of hold on to the idea that somehow we will figure out how to incorporate this technology into the, the project of enlightenment. What? Mary. I think it's a myth that there ever was a single collective memory. There have always been contested memories. Some have been marginalised. Some people and groups have had the command of power, resources, material and cultural and symbolic resources to put across their version in public and marginalise and silence others. So there has never been a single national collective memory. All we're seeing now is a shift in the character of the resources that you need to control and where the power lies in order to put across certain stories and not others. I think so that's a great point. it's a change, yeah. but it's not a change of the sort that you started the question with. Okay, well, I think there's probably a whole other podcast or series of podcasts <laughs> which will need to be uh, laid on to get to the bottom of, of that big question. But we have one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our, our bookshelf segment. If people want to delve deeper onto these topics, obviously your starting point should be the January, February 2018 edition of Foreign Affairs on the Undead Past which, will con which contains all the pieces that Justin was talking about, plus a cornucopia of other issues um, on, on international affairs. But what else should people read? Do you want to go first, first Francisco? Um, well, I mean, we spoke about personal explorations of the question of confronting the past and confronting family histories. And um, now I read this a while ago, but there is one memoir by a German journalist um, who writes about her father, um, I think it was translated as My Father's Land, her name is Wiebke Bruns, and it struck me as particularly analytical um, at the same time very deep and sort of in its, its, again, like its personal exploration of her father who was not a perpetrator, but um, he was actually executed by the, um, he was hanged by the, um, killed by the Nazis in 1944 for having a marginal role in the um, uh, attempt on um, Hitler's life, but he was also somebody who made a lot of, who accommodated, um, who made a lot of um, a bystander kind of choices you might want to call it or or was in many ways not um, he certainly kind of ended up in, in that role more or less by chance and so she really wants to understand how her father came who, who her father was and how her father um, came to pretty much not take an, an active role but um, uh, try to live his life making also lots of opportunistic choices and so in that sense they, she tries to get a, an understanding of the complexity of her father's sort of character, but perhaps also sort of speaking to larger issues of that um, reckoning or dealing with the perpetrator sort of uh, generation. Great. Mary, what would you recommend? I find this an almost impossible question because there are so many books <laughs> on this area. Um, and so I guess if I had to just plump for one that is a novel, um, I would say Krista Wolf, Kintite's Muster, sometimes translated as A Model Childhood or Pattern of Childhood, which looks at the three layers she addressed. She was an East German writer. Um, she My wrote this in the mid books about her. 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> she wrote this in the mid 1970s, which was very unusual in the then GDR, where What's looking the at name the novel, Krista Wolf, spelt W O L F, as in wolf. Mm-hmm. And the book is sometimes translated as a model childhood and sometimes as patterns of childhood. And this is a really complex novel, very unusual for something in the GDR, where she writes in three different um, forms. The she of the childhood self who grew up in Nazi Germany as part of the community who were complicit with Nazism. The you of the adult woman going back to her former hometown now in Poland. And then only in the final paragraph of the whole novel, using the I, where she can put herself in the present, the author, writer, or the narrator, writing about this past, together with the you and the she, the second and third persons. And that, to me, brings alive the difficulties of putting yourself together through radically different regimes, dealing with an intensely problematic past where you have to confront complicity and involvement in in a wider community of perpetrators with an adult self who rejects that and yet is formed by that and yet at the same time can't talk about it because of the current dictatorial conditions which constrain how you can talk about it and then finally the, the self who manages to bring it all together and say as I said in the last paragraph I so I think that novel in many ways brings together so many things that we academics try and write about at great length and far less brilliantly. What about you, Justin? Well, first of all, I appreciate the plug for the current issue of Foreign Affairs. Thank you. And I'm going to do something that may be a little corny, but I really I mean this in earnest. Uh, in preparing for our event today, uh, there were two books in particular that were very, very interesting and useful to me. The first was by Mary, uh, our guest here. Uh, Mary Fulbrook wrote a, a fascinating book called The Small Town Near Auschwitz. It may be 2012, 2013, and... Um, it's just an incredible portrait of exactly what the title uh, promises about how ordinary Germans contended with these extraordinary uh, circumstances that the Third Reich introduced into into uh, Europe. Um, it, the kind of insights that you've heard her, uh, you know, provide uh, in the past uh, twenty minutes at book length. So I strongly recommend that. The other one is uh, a book by one of the uh, panelists we had here today, uh, Nicholas Guyat. It's his most recent book. It's called Bind Us Apart, um, which is a just fantastic history of how ideas about racial segregation and integration have played out in the 18th and 19th century in the United States and does this fantastic job of complicating the conventional narrative of abolition. Um, it turns out that uh, a lot of liberals... Uh, in the 18th and 19th century uh, context um, in the United States didn't quite favor uh, integration in the way that uh, we might think that they did. Um, just a, It's a terrific book, and, and I, I really I, I strongly recommend those two. Okay, and this is a really tricky uh, podcast for me to be moderating because in a way it's a family business that um, I've been talking about. My mother... Um, comes from a German-Jewish background, was born in hiding in France, and then went back to Germany uh, with her mother after the war, and has written about 30 books on um, uh, these topics um, over the last few decades, most of which are not available in English, but I will plug one, because if not, I might lose my... That's a good sign. Um, She wrote a wonderful biography of of Jean-Emery, who is a... Uh, an Austrian Auschwitz survivor who um, is uh, 
actually written rather wonderfully about um, uh, about this whole question of, of memory and wrote one of the most incredible essays I've read on the impossibility and necessity of being a Jew. Uh, so it's called The Philosopher of Auschwitz, Jean Yahim, Living with the Holocaust. We will put links up to all of these uh, uh, publications on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. We hope that you've enjoyed listening to us. If you have, please make sure that you let other people know about it, tweet about it, write about it on your Facebook page or ours. But above all, rush to the ratings and reviews page of iTunes and uh, give us a review because it really helps to drive traffic to the website. But for now, from uh, Justin Voigt, um, Mary Fulbrook, Francisca Exeter, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hakenbosch, and our editor is Katarina Botel-Azinaro. Thank you.